Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridget. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today the guest that we will be talking with is a man named George Grant. This name will be very familiar to, to those of you who are in the pro-life movement, at least those of you who have been interested in the history of the pro-life movement, because George Grant was actually a key member of Operation Rescue, the, the mass movement in the late 1980s and, and early 1990s. But more than being part of pro-life history, George Grant is also, uh, in my opinion, one of the best pro-life historians uh, of our movement that we've ever seen. His book, Third Time Around, A History of the Pro-Life Movement from the Crucifixion Until Present, is, is an extraordinarily valuable book that traces the history of pro-life action uh, in defense of the defenseless, uh, of Christians being a voice for the voiceless, all the way back to the early church and then all the way through uh, the last 2,000 years of Christian history until the present day, where George Grant makes the case that the pro-life movement today is fighting uh, at the crest of the third wave, the third time around. Now, he's currently a pastor in the uh, Presbyterian Church, but he also has written dozens of other books. The list is incredibly extensive. He's written the history of Planned Parenthood, of the ACLU. He's uh, gone through different types of legislation and critiqued them very in-depth. He's done anthologies uh, of various heroes of the Christian faith that demand our attention, and he's written a lot uh, on the current culture in the United States, how Christians should relate to that culture, and another book, for example, that I really enjoyed from him was Lost Causes, The Romantic Attraction of Defeated Men and Movements. These, these books are, are really quite exceptional, and I highly recommend that, that people take a look at the work of George Grant. Now, uh, Third Time Around has been out of print uh, for quite a while. Uh, we ordered copies online to teach uh, at our internships at the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform to give young pro-life activists uh, a view of, of the tradition that they walk in, the, the footsteps that they're following in, so that they, they feel encouraged, so that they realize that the pro-life movement didn't start 40 or 50 years ago. The, the pro-life movement started 2,000 years ago, and that we draw on an enduring legacy and magnificent traditions. And this is something that I've always found very encouraging, and that the, the young pro-life activists that we train find encouraging as well. So I've been trying to, to get an interview with, with uh, Dr. Grant for quite a long time, and finally uh, we managed to uh, have a conversation and discuss his book third time around, discuss the pro-life movement, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So, so I just want to start off by asking you how you got involved in the pro-life movement, because I understand you were also involved with Operation Rescue. Yeah, I actually became involved in the pro-life movement very early on. I was in high school in Dallas, Texas, when the district attorney of the city of Dallas was sued in federal court by Sarah Weddington and uh, and uh, Jane Rowe, as uh, she was uh, then known, and uh, was actually a part of a small group that went to the courthouse to hear uh, Henry Wade uh, talk about the case that would, of course, become Roe v. Wade. And so very early on, I was actually uh, engaged in in the the movement and was uh, one of the 
one of the very few Protestants at that time who saw the dangers of of the abortion movement. Uh, of course, I had no inkling of the full ramifications and the historical and theological precedents at that time. But uh, so I got involved very, very early on. So what got you involved in Operation Rescue? One of the reasons uh, a few people, myself included, are looking a lot more at this movement is because even if the tactics uh, no longer work due to legal changes and things like that, the attitude that if abortion is murder, act like it has a real resonance for a lot of youth coming into the pro-life movement today. Yeah, I actually uh, did not, I was not aware of Operation Rescue when we first started doing some direct action protests uh, where I was then a pastor in Houston, Texas, I uh, quickly came, became aware of uh, Randall Terry and of Operation Rescue, but we had already begun to do some things. We, uh, Several of the men in our church who regularly prayed at the local Planned Parenthood had the inkling to go and look inside the Planned Parenthood dumpster, uh, out in back of their facility, and they found a treasure trove, uh, if that's the right word, of uh, documents as well as uh, um, destroyed uh, implements of of abortion, including uh, several bodies of children. And so, when when that occurred, we our our congregation and those that we walked with in the in the prayer movement and the counseling sidewalk uh, counseling movement, uh, we we were just outraged and horrified. And the reality of the murder of the unborn, uh, while theoretical before, became so much more crystallized for us. And so we began to do some direct action at that point. Uh, not so much uh, entering the the abortion clinics, but but certainly obstructing ingress and egress and uh, surrounding and mass movement uh, and praying uh, at the Planned Parenthood and several of the other local abortion clinics. And uh, word got out that we were doing this about the same time that Randall Terry and Operation Rescue was getting underway. And uh, then uh, Randall made a trip to Houston. We met and uh, became uh, uh, friends and started working together after that. And what are your, your a few of your memories of Operation Rescue? Because I think a lot of people, and uh, people my age are still waiting for a book to be written on this by somebody who was part of it rather than a journalist who's commenting on it, because it was extraordinary what happened and how many people were involved. And, and anybody who's had the opportunity to sit down with a veteran of Operation Rescue and hear their stories... Their stories are just incredible. Um, yeah, it was it was uh, remarkable uh, for the way it brought together Christians from uh, every walk of life: Roman Catholics, uh, Fundamentalists, Baptists, Pentecostals, uh, Presbyterians, uh, Reformed folks. I mean, it was it was really quite remarkable in the way it brought people together. Uh, it was remarkable for the spirit. Uh, I can remember when we were in Wichita for several weeks and uh, had 
just an extraordinary uh, outpouring of of worship and prayerfulness. Uh, it was uh, it was one of the most powerful spiritual experiences I've ever had. And uh, that was, you know, during the prayer meetings at, at night. It wasn't even, you know, the stuff that took place on the streets. Uh, the kinds of uh, prayer meetings and and things that uh, that so overwhelmed the police when we were in paddy wagons or uh, in the jails themselves uh, was extraordinary. Felt very much like a kind of New Testament uh, biblical sort of of moment. Obviously, there were different tactics and different aspects of of the movement from the beginning. Uh, there, there were some almost anarchists who were involved. Uh, there were others who were much more cautious and inclined to prayer on the sidewalk kind of thing. Uh, but uh, what united everyone was the certainty that we had to do something, uh, that we had to to act. It was largely led. Uh, by by pastors, and so it was uh, rooted in the life of local churches. It was uh, it was it was one of those uh, remarkable moments. I, I had the privilege of being a part of the Jesus movement in the uh, early seventies uh, through the late seventies, and it felt uh, Operation Rescue was was in many ways had the same visceral effect on many of us that that movement did. So you uh, have been called by, by many people, including most recently the one I talked to, who described you as the historian of the pro-life movement was uh, Joseph Foreman. And you've written a books on Planned Parenthood. You've covered a lot of different topics. But I think the reason people are drawn to your book, uh, Third Time Around, A History of the Pro-Life Movement, from the crucifixion until present, is because it's it's one of a kind. Nobody else has written a book like this, and nobody else has tried to draw the the thread of of Christian action against abortion that far back. What gave you the inspiration to write that book? Really, it was uh, my own study of the scriptures themselves, and realizing that uh, that the, the essence of the fall and the brokenness of man, and the root of everything from prejudice and persecution, uh, discrimination, racism, uh, all the way to abortion, euthanasia, uh, etc. The, the root of it all is uh, what Freud called the thanatos factor, the, uh, the impulse to death. Uh, right. we, we see it uh, everywhere in, in the scriptures. All those who hate God love death uh, at the fall a man was destined for death, according to Jeremiah, uh, made a covenant with death, according to Isaiah. Uh, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it's in just the way of death, Proverbs says. So my, my understanding of the character and nature of the fall and uh, the radical redemption that comes by the power of the gospel in Christ caused me to uh, to realize, okay, if, if this is at the root of the character and nature of man in this fall and uh, the hope of redemption, then it ought to be traceable in history. And you know, knowing what I did know about missionary movements uh, in the 19th century and the confrontation 
that uh, most missionaries going to um, hard soil fields faced in dealing with everything from human sacrifice to sate to uh, you know uh, all forms of of abandonment and infanticide, etc. I, I realized, okay, this this is probably traceable, and I just began to do serious reading in church history, and lo and behold, it's everywhere. And then when you, when you found it, you you structured in a way, structured your book in a, in a very very interesting way. You essentially describe. Uh, three times around, uh, three three great uprisings of, of you know child sacrifice and infanticide and, and and these sorts of things on a demonic proportion, and then the response of of Christian pro-lifers the first time, the second time, and then we would be in what you call the third time around. So right. how how did you sort of organize, like give our listeners a bit of an idea of what the central thesis here is? Well, one of the things that that we see in in the history of of the gospel in the world is that there have been times of great growing consensus and victory, particularly in the life issues, uh, where where uh, the, the the message of the gospel, even in people that are unregenerate, there, there becomes a cultural consensus that that the kind of death-dealing that was normal in antiquity suddenly becomes unthinkable by the time we reach the medieval age. So that's the first time around, the, the taking root of the gospel in the world, the building of a cultural consensus that life is uh, precious and sacred, uh, that all forms of death-dealing must be dealt with in law and in culture, you see that all the way up through the medieval age. That's the first time around. But with the coming of the Enlightenment and the skepticism of uh, of the Renaissance, we start to see this uh, this creeping in again of death dealing as uh, people become amoral and uh, and uh, sexual mores begin to change, and we start to see. Uh, philosophers like Descartes and Rousseau uh, start to um, a- actually give justification for certain kinds of killing in certain circumstances. Uh, it it really required in the Renaissance and the Reformation period uh, a new surge of commitment to the least and the last. And so the second time around really is that, that second push to build a cultural consensus of the preciousness of life to be protected by by law that that really that goes all the way up through to the 19th century when again we have a new wave of skepticism that starts to sweep away the old consensus and we start to have the creeping in again of uh, a selective uh, prejudice selective killing and uh, everything from uh, genocide and Holocaust to abortion and, and infanticide become normalized again, as they had been in ancient antiquity. And uh, that really has required a new surge, a new pro-life movement the third time around. So uh, I, I believe that we're in the midst of the thick of the battle this third time around, and 
uh, we have yet to see the cultural consensus turn, uh, but I'm very encouraged by the new generation of pro-lifers who have come to the conviction that uh, it's not just babies that are precious. Uh, there is a, a real concern for a much more substantive, non-emotional uh, commitment uh, to the sanctity of life. What are a few specific things you've seen that have encouraged you? Because I think that a lot of us, when we don't read history, we're, we're, we're sort of confined by the present, and a lot of people uh, become given to despair and hopelessness and think, you know, things have never been this bad before. Uh, we haven't seen this before. It's one of the reasons I've found uh, your work so helpful in my own presentations is explain that this is actually the third time this has happened since the crucifixion. Uh, this has been done before and by people with the same convictions. What, were, what are some things you see emerging that, that would really encourage you? Well, first of all, I think that there is an emerging theological consensus that the gospel stands against cultures uh, and uh, worldviews of death. Uh, that, that's an, an emerging thing that I'm starting to see. Part of the problem with, say, the rescue movement uh, 15, 20 years ago was that uh, there, there were... There were large swaths of the theological world that were appalled by the tactics and thus ran from the message. Large churches, uh, to the greater degree, uh, stayed away. And uh, in a sense, it stigmatized the pro-life movement. Uh, what we have seen, though, is that with the continuing success of crisis pregnancy centers and now new tactics like mobile uh, uh, crisis pregnancy centers uh, with ultrasound uh, going out into the streets, things like uh, the stork movement, etc., what we're, what we're starting to see is a, a, a stronger consensus in large swaths of the church. You still have a, a lot of uh, pastors who are invested in uh, sort of their own little kingdoms. That, that's just a part of it. But uh, part of what I'm encouraged by is seeing a deeper rootedness in the theological convictions of the sanctity of life. That's number one. Number two, I'm really encouraged by the infusion of, of young uh, men and women, uh, high school students, college students, young adults, uh, who have given new life to the pro-life movement in almost every sector of the pro-life uh, world, except maybe the political sector. Uh, and uh, even that, to me, is somewhat encouraging, because the solution uh, to the, the dilemma that we face in our culture will come first and foremost uh, with the re-engagement and reinvigoration of the churches, uh, and secondly, as individuals who don't have political power uh, move into their various areas of calling, bringing that theological conviction, that's what will change the culture and, and will force the political realm uh, to do uh, the things that they need to do. But that's going to be the last the last step in all likelihood. 
So where on the in the scale of the, the third time around does Operation Rescue fit, right? And most people don't realize that there was over 70,000 arrests, which is more than even the civil rights movement a couple of decades before that. Uh, it was, as you point out, an incredibly ecumenical movement in terms of people working together as co-belligerents to save lives. It was people responding to uh, the killing of babies as an emergency. But at the same time, it, it fell apart after about 10 years for various reasons, although uh, the one point I always do make is that almost every major pro-life organization in the States was founded by a veteran of Operation Rescue. So you could say it, it split up, branched off, and, and laid the, the foundation for much of the movement that we see today. But in your mind, where does it fit into the movement, and then how did it end? Well, I think Operation Rescue was a catalyst a catalyst is uh, is is not the the great force itself. It's what triggers the great force. And so I think one of the things that Operation Rescue did that, that you rightly point out is it raised up a whole host of grassroots leaders, uh, people who were thinking outside the box, who were entrepreneurial in their approach, who were uh, visionary, and because of sort of the, the breakup of Operation Rescue, uh, many of those people were forced to go back and do serious study and serious uh, re-evaluation. Uh, I don't know of almost any veterans of Operation Rescue who regret uh, what we did in those days. I think what they would say is it, that was a season uh, that has propelled us into a new season and uh, we, we've not really fully arrived in that new season, and we don't know what it looks like yet, but, uh, but that, that was most assuredly a catalyst to prepare us for the next step. Now, the reason it fell apart, um, I think, was uh, you know, a lot of people will point to the, to the changing tactics of Planned Parenthood and the application of uh, RICO laws and, and all of the rest, and while most assuredly those kinds of operation ta uh, uh, opposition tactics had appalling effect, I don't think that's the reason that the movement began to splinter and disintegrate. I, I think uh, in large part it was due to uh, deficiencies in the leadership. I think... Um, rivalries and uh, and uh, difficulties between individuals uh, caused uh, a, a kind of splintering. And uh, then there were all kinds of, of confusing things going on, uh, marriages that were in trouble, things like that. And, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of like a Balaam moment uh, in the pro-life movement where uh, it wasn't going to be um, Moab that brought Israel down. It was Israel that brought Israel down. And what can we learn from that? It's interesting because when I uh, I, I teach a course to our, our interns here at the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform every summer, and one of the books that we read is Wrath of Angels, The History of the American Abortion War. It's the best book written by uh, by journalists on Operation Rescue simply because they do make an attempt at, at being, at, at, 
at actually being balanced. Uh, they don't they don't quite get there because their worldview constrains them a bit too much, but that just makes it more helpful for analysis in terms of uh, sure. you know having to ferret out uh, where the bias comes in. But the description of of the marriages that collapse and those sorts of things and the dangers that come with working in the pro life movement, especially when you're doing the sorts of an intense type of work. Uh, on the streets, at the abortion clinics, and things like that. What sorts of lessons can the pro-life movement really draw from Operation Rescue? Well, I think it's the lesson that we can learn from all of history, and that is that when there is a lack of accountability and a lack of discipleship, when you start to build a celebrity culture, uh, you get into trouble. So marriages start to crumble when uh, people uh, begin to think that there's something that they are not. When uh, the the call to repentance and humility is not uh, constantly forthcoming. Uh, when there is, uh, when a movement is not rooted in the church, uh, that uh, that movement is always going to be on shaky foundations. Um, the the truth is is that the church is Plan A, and there is no Plan B. So what would your advice be going forward? You've experienced more than, than most of the people uh, listening to the show. Uh, you've, you've gone through some of the, the really big events in the pro-life movement of the last 30 years, and you've also been a pastor. So can all those things combined, what sort of advice do you have to young pro-lifers starting out? Well, the first thing is to do what all of us must do in, in real battle, and that is to make sure that uh, that you yourself are rooted, that you're accountable, that uh, all of the checks and balances that the Bible puts into place for our lives, that the, that the Church affords us when the Church is healthy, uh, that all of that is fully engaged in your life. Otherwise, you're a sitting duck. Uh, you know, I, I, I tell uh, pro-life leaders all the time, when's the last time you read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. And if it's been more than five years, I say, go back and reread it. Right. Uh, so th- that's the first thing. Make sure that, uh, that you're drawing from, uh, drawing from the well, uh, that you're not operating out of dry and broken cisterns. The second thing that I would say is that uh, we, we have to make certain that, that our, our pro-life message is rooted in something far more than mere bioethical uh, constraints uh, laid out in philosophical terms or emotional terms. In other words, we need to be rooted in enduring truth. We need to be rooted in the gospel itself. And uh, as as we develop tactics, as we think through uh, new ways to serve the hurting around us, uh, we need to make sure that it is holistically engaged in uh, genuine gospel truth. And then finally, what I would say is uh, we, we've got to constantly be students of our own culture so that we understand what it is that is motivating the culture. Ten, uh, the tendency of most of us is to look at the second and third order consequences of the culture, uh, and uh, and not at the root causes or motivations of the culture, and so we're always dealing with symptoms rather than with uh, with the the root causes. So we've we've got to be students of our culture. We need to understand what motivates the culture, and 
and, and then develop strategies, tactics, uh, and and approaches, uh, apologetic approaches that accord with our, our times. Every season is slightly different, and uh, what worked before uh, may have to be dramatically adjusted in order to work now, and we've we've got to constantly hold on to the unchanging message, uh, but uh, utilize. Uh, approaches that will reach our culture. In other words, we need to contextualize. And one last question. Now, when uh, I'll, I'll actually make it two questions. When is your new edition of Third Time Around coming out? And when would you write a book on Operation Rescue? Well, the the new version of Third Time Around is uh, is actually underway right now. I have not tried to secure a publisher. Um, I, w- I want the project to be completely finished so that I don't have to adjust the book for the purposes of the publisher. So it, it's probably at least, uh, you know, a year away before it's going to be out. Uh, and in, in terms of Operation Rescue, uh, there's, a, there's a, a whole chapter in the new version just on Operation Rescue it's not a full history, but it is like the rest of Third Time Around. It's it is a, a kind of survey, and I've I've actually not considered writing a, a full history of Operation Rescue. I'm still in touch with people like uh, Flip Benham and uh, Randall Terry and Joe Foreman and uh, Patrick Mahoney and and so many of the others that were you know vital to the to the growth of the movement, and so, you know, maybe, maybe uh, at, at some point uh, we'll we'll sit down and collaborate and come up with something. Well, our our generation would really appreciate that because it would be it would be awesome to be able to read the history of the pro life movement written by pro lifers who were there rather than journalists covering it. Um, so, yeah, we just thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really really appreciate this. Well, thank you, thank you, and thank you for uh, carrying on the torch.